So Jesus asked the question, to what shall I compare this generation? And as it was for Jesus' generation, so a generation or so later, it might have been for Matthew's. And so his comparison is also fitting for our generation as well. Jesus makes the comparison of the generation to children sitting in the marketplace, vying for control over each other, not playing by the rules, and assigning blame. Think about this odd, this odd couplet. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. It's an odd saying that might have referred to an ancient Aesop's fable, but it's almost certainly a reference to a game that children played, a fairly common game of weddings and funerals. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. Instead of taking turns and playing fair, the children are spoiling the game. They behave a bit like the authorities who said John the baptizer must have had a demon for he was an ascetic, but who then turned around and accused Jesus of gluttony for his breaking of the social norms, eating with tax collectors, others declared as outcast. What John and Jesus have in common here is that they didn't stay completely within the norms of the day. And this generation didn't like it. It's a, they're almost a, disturb, a disturbance in the force. We played the flute and you, ascetic one, did not dance. We wailed and you, glutton, parted instead of mourning. Now it's a bit too easy to take a straight line here to go straight to international relations or to our own political sphere, to find norms being ignored and find ourselves consequently threatened in some way. We can see jockeying for power and name-calling and blame anytime, wherever we turn for news. But what's harder, I think, for me, maybe for us to see, is how we get caught up in what one of my teachers, a chap called Rabbi Edwin Friedman, called a society in regression. This business of being caught up in things, in things over which we do not exercise control uh, is, I think, what St. Paul is talking about in his tortured section from Romans. Uh, it's, it's, he's saying, I know the law. I'm a Pharisee. I know how to keep the law. He's a good Pharisee, after all. But I don't do what I want to do. He's... he's he may be do, having an internal struggle in sharing that with us, but he's certainly standing as a kind of representative of humanity, a, a new Adam, if you like, a kind of everyman, when he says, I don't understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want, I do the very thing I hate. He breathes the same air as everyone else, and it's almost as though malignant forces conspire to keep him from being the person who was created to be. Thank God for Jesus, he says. There's hope in the power of God. Hope that we might get clear about what we need and who we are and not simply be battered around by what he calls sin in the, in the body, but we might call the air we breathe. Um, have any of you heard of Edwin Friedman? Couple, couple, okay. He was a rabbi who was fired from his congregation uh, in Bethesda, Maryland, and in his search for understanding, he became a student of a chap called Murray Bowen. And Bowen, uh, the National Institute of Mental Health, studied uh, seven generations at a time of families that had someone in the family with schizophrenia. And he studied what he called multi-generational process. And Friedman 
saw that congregations often resemble families and that unless something interrupts this process, then we're doomed to keep repeating it. He gave the example of you could have a problem in a congregation. I know there's no problems in this one ever, but, um, <clears throat> but it could be in the choir, it could be in the women's group, it could be on the board, and, and, and it gets worked out somehow, usually with wailing and gnashing of teeth, and, and then all those people are gone, and a generation or so later, with no contact with that original group, you have the exact same problem working out in the exact same place with the exact same dynamics. It happens over and over again, unless the system is interrupted. He has, has a lot of ideas, but one particularly important idea here is he, has the, he talks about the, the importance of presence. And he talks about how some people, how families are getting on fine, for example. Some people just make things worse. They, the, the, the anxiety just goes up when they come in the room. Uh, your family's doing great at Thanksgiving dinner until Aunt Mildred or Uncle Claude show up and suddenly there is tension in the room. Will they get drunk again and turn on mother? You know, it's, 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 just, it's just tension. And the alternative to that is there's chaos in the house and they say, just wait till your mother gets home or just wait till your father gets home and father gets home and when he or she arrives, everything simply calms down. Some people have that effect. They are some step up anxiety while others step it down. Friedman uses the phrase non-anxious presence to refer to the kind of way uh, of being in the world to which every one of us can aspire, by which we can seek clarity of purpose, remember where we end and another begins, not taking on anxiety that is ours, not getting caught up, not simply just breathing the air without thinking about it. And surely the ultimate non-anxious presence is Jesus. I think about how he navigated through his trials at the end of his life and how it's almost as though everyone else is on trial and how he was just centered. And, and, and at one, even when he had to say hard things, one of you is going to betray me, um, he managed to do it in a way that somehow the system around him, while it was kind of going crazy, he wasn't going crazy. Now, however we prefer to commune with Jesus, whatever our way of doing that is, is a way to, it's a way to gain clarity for ourselves, to remember what really matters. It's what we're doing here, is turning toward what is of ultimate worth, so that the story of what really matters can shape our life and our responses and our way of being in the world, and, and, and to, to manage whatever anxiety we're carrying. It's, it's a work towards being non-anxious through clarity, or in the words of Murray Bowen, self-differentiation. But there's another insight here, and it's to do with this gospel. As we get clarity we can, and change, we can expect that the system will seek stasis. The system will seek to put us back in our place. The system will want things to go on as they were. This is what was happening when they accused John of, of uh, being an ascetic and Jesus of being a glutton. In fact, it was them seeking stasis that would ultimately lead to their death. You decide, for example, you've all got examples of this, you decide that you are finally going to not be at the beck and behest of your mother. You're going to not talk to her on the telephone every day for hours and hours and hours. You're going to just talk maybe twice a week for 30 minutes and you feel really good about this decision and, and you know it's going to be better for your life and your family's life and, and, and you 
started in, and a day or two in, she falls over, breaks her hip, goes in the hospital, and you are once again at her behest and beck and call, because you have to be, because it's your mother. And our job, when the system is putting us back in our place, is how to navigate without getting caught up in the anxiety, the reactivity in the system. Our goal is not to become reactive. So let's go back to this children's game, weddings and funerals. John the baptizer, and to an even greater extent, Jesus, are disturbances in the force. And the system ultimately seeks stasis by putting them to their death. In fact, it's Jesus' death in particular that reveals these realities. Not to those who already know how to navigate everything, not to the wise and intelligent, not to the people who know their way around the system, not to the people who define what's important, but to infants who can yet learn a new way of being in the world. Maybe us, a way of becoming non-anxious when anxiety is swirling around, a way of becoming non-anxious after the model and pattern of Jesus, hoping that he may dwell in us and we in him. Friedman, my teacher, used to say that when we're on this journey, 70% is making A's, by which he meant perfection is not necessarily the goal here. The goal is that we not join in the blaming and the name-calling and the rumor-mongering and the vitriol that is in the air we breathe around us so much of the time. As we seek to be disciples of Jesus, so we can discover with Paul what seems so difficult, what can seem almost intolerable burden. I don't do what I want to do. That possibly with Jesus, it's a yoke that is easy and the burden that is light as we start claiming who we are, realizing that we're never stuck, that we don't have to be simply subject to the forces around us. And turn again to God and say with Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I offer this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Chapel of the Cross is an Episcopal church in the heart of Chapel Hill and the university community. Find out more at thechapelofthecross.org. There you can find our latest news and events, connect with our pastoral care team, Faith in Action Ministries, and offer a prayer request. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at thechapelofthecross, and on Facebook and Twitter at C-O-T-C, Chapel Hill. May you be nourished by the word to serve in the world.